Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the All Souls Forum. Tonight's presentation is Finding Power and Peace in Charting Your End-of-Life Journey. It is given by Angela Schultz and Ben Griffith of Compassion and Choice. It was recorded February 11, 2024 at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. morning. Welcome to the forum at All Souls. My name is Alex Westerfeld. I will be the moderator this morning. We've been operating since 1943. We provide a platform for the discussion of significant issues in the contemporary world. Today's presentation is about the importance of end-of-life planning. The nation's oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit that works to promote end-of-life care, expand options for people at the end of their lives, and empower all persons to chart their end-of-life journey is Compassion and Choices. Our speaker today, Angela Schultz, is the state's advocacy manager for Compassion and Choices. She works to integrate program development, policy, and coalition building to create change. She is a social worker with 17 years of experience in congressional offices, nonprofits, and presenting to groups like ours. Join me in welcoming Angela this morning. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well today. My name is Angela, and today we're going to talk about conversations that count, finding peace and power in charting your end-of-life journey. Um, and we are so excited to be here in Kansas City today. We're rooting for uh, the Chiefs over here, both Ben and I. So the agenda today, um, we're going to talk about what our mission is, the end-of-life options available in Missouri, and then we'll have um, a storyteller, Ben Griffith, uh, share a story about his dad uh, using the visa process, and then I'll also touch on medical aid and dying. We'll also talk about advanced care planning, advanced directives, your living will and power of attorney, and then other important documents to consider, including a dementia addendum. I'll also share, share some additional CNC resources, and then we'll do a question and answer. So Compassion and Choices is the nation's oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit working to expand options, improve care, and empower everyone to chart their end-of-life journey. We believe in patient-directed care, where patients should have the ultimate decision of choosing treatments that align with their values. Patients and healthcare providers should be working as a team. Their healthcare team should not be making such decisions alone. While we call these end-of-life options, I really want you to think about this is not necessarily planning for your death. It's more about planning how you want to live your life as, as you near end-of-life. Um, I also want to note that these end-of-life options are not in any particular order, and some of them can also be used together. Um, so you can always pursue some or all treatment options available. So you can choose to take antibiotics, but you may want to forego some more aggressive treatments, such as surgery as you get older. And then palliative care is specialized medical care for people living with serious illness. It consists of a care team that usually includes a physician, social worker, nurse, chaplain, pharmacist, or other trained specialist. Palliative care is based on the needs of the patient and focuses on symptom management. 
And you can also receive palliative care while you're receiving curative care. So still while you're getting treatment. The care team also works with caregivers to provide education and tools. And this has been shown to greatly reduce stress and burnout for caregivers. Examples of palliative care include pain medication or massages to treat pain caused by treatments, spiritual and emotional support, and physical and occupational therapy. So palliative care is appropriate for anyone of any age during any stage of the illness. So as soon as you get diagnosed with a serious illness, you can request palliative care. Um, and it's estimated that only 11% of people receiving palliative care are in their last year of life. Um, palliative care is also covered by insurance. However, the length of time and services offered to a person may vary depending on what kind of insurance you have. So hospice is a service that provides compassionate care at the end of life. Patient's primary care physician and other doctors um, or another doctor can make the referral for hospice care following a determination that the patient will most likely die from their disease within six months or less. And the goal is to maintain or improve quality of life. It involves an interdisciplinary team of caregivers that often includes doctors, nurses, home health aides, social workers, chaplains, trained volunteers, and others. For those who have an appropriate medical referral, the cost of hospice is usually covered by Medicare, Medicaid, VA, or third-party insurance. And hospice can take place wherever the person resides, most often in the home. Hospice can also provide bereavement counseling, family support, and end-of-life planning. And I just want to point out again, because um, a lot of people get palliative care and hospice care confused. Um, so hospice care is when you have that six-month prognosis, uh, you stop receiving curative care, and you just want to focus on quality of life um, and make you know either improving it or maintaining it at the end of life. Um, while palliative care can be received at during any time of a serious illness, um, and typically you get palliative care in the hospital setting. Although, like, depending on where you are, Kansas City probably has it because it's a bigger city. They have kind of gone out now into more community settings. So uh, stopping and refusing treatments. Um, this includes discontinuing medications or foregoing treatment. So you can always request comfort care and choose to discontinue medications, such as if you're taking heart medication um, you can stop taking your heart medication and just request comfort care, or you can forego treatment options that you've already been receiving. So if you've been taking, um, doing dialysis, you could choose to stop doing dialysis and just request comfort care. And then palliative sedation, which is also referred to as terminal sedation, um, this is an option that's used in very rare circumstances. So at the end of life, you do have the right to request as much pain medication as you need to feel comfortable. Um, but there are some cases where the amount of pain medication and sedatives um, really are, you know, taking the level of pain away that people would want. Um, so your doctor usually will bring this up after talking to your family members and you, the patient, you about it. And then it has to be medically managed. Um, during the same time that somebody receives palliative sedation, they're also uh, withdrawn from nutrition and fluids. And then voluntary stop eating and drinking. Um, it's referred to as VSAD. So this is a process where a person chooses to end all food or fluid to experience a death that is consistent with the body's natural dying process. So this end of life option is available in all 50 states. 
um, to people who are over the age of 18 and still have their decision-making capabilities. VSED is a patient-directed approach. So the person decides when they will start VSED, and if the individual reconsiders their decision and decides to resume eating or drinking after starting VSED, caregivers must honor this choice. Um, so while it is legal, not everyone is understanding or supportive of this choice. So we always really encourage people to make sure they have a supportive care team. This can include your families, friends, loved ones, end-of-life doulas, physicians, and the hospice team. The person choosing to do VSET can select the people in their life who are supportive of their choice and surround them with during this process. As the VSET process continues, the person will need help with self-care, such as helping them turn in bed to not develop bed sores. A, support, a supportive physician or hospice can provide palliative care medications to help with thirst, hunger, and other symptoms that naturally occur at the end of life. And then if the person resides in a care facility and, this, and you're interested in doing VSED, you should ask the care facility or assisted living facility if they are supportive. So some facilities consider food and hydration medical care, which a person can decline, while others, other facilities consider it basic needs. Uh, so in those situations, if it's considered basic need, the assisted living facility or care facility may not be as supportive of this option. And now I want to introduce um, Ben Griffith, who will share for a little bit about his dad, John, who chose to do VSED at the end of his life. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, um, Angela, for inviting me, and thank you, UU, for having me to share the story of my experience with VSED. My father was 99 years old when he undertook VSED, but he had been seriously thinking about it for a decade. I know one of his wishes as he undertook VSED was to advocate for those seeking a more compassionate and caring approach to those who are dying. My father was very clear about wanting to avoid a long, long bedridden passage through the end of life. He felt that moving to an assisted living uh, would increase the odds that he would lose control. And so he fought fiercely to stay at his home in Gladstone. My oldest brother, the primary caretaker living in Parkville, would have liked to get my father to consider assisted living, but my dad was adamant. Honestly, part of the reason why my dad wanted to avoid assisted living and the possibility of a nursing home is he was simply a cheapskate. The thought of spending all that money while he was on the path to dying made no logical sense to him. The idea of paying out that money at the end of his life was literally painful. And we all know the statistics of how much the vast majority of our healthcare dollars go to the end of life. Many argue that this is backwards. We are not a talking about this issue. I digress. I'm sorry. My father and I talked about this kind of stuff over our Zoom visits during his last years. I knew he wanted to avoid a long and expensive death passage. I also knew my brother, who was carrying the load of caretaking, 
My dad was a pretty sharp cookie, even at 99 years old. His body, his brain still needed a lot of support and help from my brother at that time. And without that help and support, my, my father would not have been able to stay in his house. Anyway, Angela is going to be highlighting a bunch of the good information about said and other important issues and angles concerning the end of life. The most helpful thing for you that I bring is my experience as a family member of somebody who underwent said. My dad accessed resources of compassion and choices in the fall of 2020. He understood said to be his best path as a Missouri resident, and he began to talk to his medical doctors, to hospice, to his family, and he tried to put an action plan in place. This wasn't a morbid exercise, but he approached it totally with practicality in mind. He made the checklist, and he started working his way through the check marks. One of the items on the list was to have a family member accompanying him as he underwent, he said. I was the first son to say yes to this, and this allowed him to put a check mark on the bullet item in October of 2020. I understood what he was asking. It took my brothers a few more months to also agree. In December, he turned 99, and he told all of us not to pray for him to see another birthday. In January, he succumbed to a chest virus and a UTI. Whether it was the medication or the illness, for the first time, he encountered a definite shift in his brain. There were short periods where he would lose his mind. He went from limited mobility to severely limited mobility. Eventually, he could only get in and out of bed by a, a hospital lift. And he would get dropped into a power wheelchair, and that's how he would get around. In late January, the doctor gave him the diagnosis that allowed him to uh, access hospice. He told his sons that he would begin thinking about starting VSED. He went from a few hours of professional in-home care to more and more hours each day. My brothers and I met over Zoom sometime in February. One of us in Vermont, I was in Kentucky, and my oldest caregiver brother in Kansas City with our father. The sons all agreed at that time to be present and to help our father if he chose to begin said. And when he asked us when he should start, we all told him that it wasn't our decision. If he was going to do said, he would now need to tell us when to start. So after a number of fits and starts, he finally let us know that he would start on March 19th, 2021. He also let a wider circle of family and friends, his Quaker meeting. Um, he let them know his intentions uh, by distributing a letter. I told my brothers, who were still not exactly comfortable with me, said that I was prepared to help dad carry through the plane. None of us knew what it would look like or be like. We just agreed to go forward. With a few days 
prepare. I got to Kansas City on the uh, afternoon of the 18th. My brother in Vermont made arrangements to get there on the 22nd. We understood that there was no timeline for how long V said might take. We could be looking at weeks, hopefully not a month. The plan for dad included switching to 24-hour on-site caregiving when he started said, My oldest brother found a company ready to work with us, and with full-time care in place, the family would be able to concentrate on dad. Consultations with hospice nurse, doctor, chaplain, professional caregiving company, they were all done before he started said. So at midnight on the 18th, my dad committed himself to taking no more water or food. It was the last night, and he ate spent by himself. We began to accompany him on the morning of the 19th. Because V said is voluntary, if the person, my dad, desires liquid or food, we would not deny him. But it was my job to remind him that the liquid or the ice chips or the food might extend his life. And it was his wish that I remind him. It never came to this. In fact, we had the opposite problem. As dad uh, became quickly parched, we offered him the damp sponge stick to swab his lips and his mouth. But he refused that until finally the hospice nurse showed up and assured him that this was a matter of comfort it would not extend his life. It was also my job to measure out the medicines as the caregiving company did not want that legal liability. I kept a log of all the administrations of medicine so that hospice and the caregiving, and caregiving company would, would be able to account for all the morphine and medicine that we received, administered, and ultimately the amount that was collected after my father passed away. We surrounded my dad. He received a number of visits from friends and family for the first three days particularly. By days four and five, he began to spend more time in bed. There was a noticeable withdrawal to his countenance. Day six, he only got out of bed once. Day seven, he stayed in bed and eventually curled up. Hospice provided regular on-sites during this time with a nurse that would show up, a team that helped clean my father. A specialist would show up uh, to address his swollen legs and ankles and feet. They consistently uh, advised on medication schedules and tips for caring for dad as well as us. The professional caregivers came and went. The final night, the caregiver on duty told us that she thought it wouldn't be long. We called in a hospice nurse around 11 p.m. that night after noticing some bile coming out of his mouth. This was a result of his organs shutting down. A bit after one in the morning, my father passed away. So he started on the first minute of March 19th and passed away in the first few minutes on the 27th. 
I can tell you my father was strong-willed and even stubborn. If somebody is considering VSED as a way to approach their end of life, I would say that being strong-willed and stubborn will serve you well. But more importantly, I think um, I would counsel you to get a plan together. Talk to your loved ones about the plan. Talk to all of your support professionals and plan on hiring 24-7 help. This approach served my dad and my family very well. Uh, I'll be get, glad to, to answer any questions you may have during the discussion period. I support wholeheartedly the, the work of Compassion and Choices to advance the cause for those who want more control and choice as we die. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, and the first time I read, I heard about um, Ben's story, I don't, was, I don't know if it was in the New York Times or something, it got published. And it was just such a lovely story, too. And one of the lines that really sticks out to me is um, from the news article was like, he was 99 years old and had had a life well lived. Um, which is what we talk about a lot of times with me said is when people make the choice to do it. Some people make the choice um, after they get a dementia diagnosis, um, before they lose their capabilities to make stop making their healthcare decisions, um, that they want to do visa to avoid living with advanced dementia. Um, some people make the decision after they've been living, you know, years with a serious illness. Um, and then some people make the decision after they've just decided it's been a life well lived. Um, so appreciate you coming and sharing your story today. Um, and then I also wanted to touch on medical aid in dying. So this is a trusted medical practice that allows a terminally ill adult option to request medication from their healthcare provider so that they can peacefully end their suffering. So the practice is authorized in 10 states plus Washington, D.C. So all of the states in blue on this map. To be eligible for medical aid in dying, an individual must be an adult, so 18 years or older. They must be terminally ill with a prognosis of six months or less to live, um, which is the same eligibility for hospice. And then they must be mentally able to make decisions about their health care, and they must be able to self-ingest the medication. In most states, you do need to be a resident of the state to access this option, with the exception of Oregon and Vermont, who recently did away with their residency requirements. Medical aid in dying is optional. It is optional for the terminally ill person to request the medication, and once they have the medication, it is optional for them whether or not they choose to ingest it or not. About 36% of people who obtain a prescription never use it. Many of their families report that even just once they get the medication, it reduces their stress and anxiety around death and whether or not they'll be suffering too much, knowing that they have this option, um, that they're able to spend the rest of their life, often just a couple of weeks, um, enjoying time with their family and loved ones. And now I want to talk about the gift of end-of-life planning. So advanced care planning gives you the opportunity to have an experience, that end-of-life experience that matches your values, priorities, and beliefs. It gives you the chance to reflect on what's most important to you, decide what kind of care you want or don't want at the end of life. 
So there's a lot of evidence behind the benefits of advanced care planning, and more importantly, the process of discussing and documenting a person's wishes, preferences, and goals of care. Advanced care planning also promotes patient-directed care. It reduces decisional burden for loved ones as to whether or not they're making decisions that are consistent with what your wishes would be. And it improves the bereavement experience of loved ones by reducing stress, anxiety, and depression after their loved one has died. To help with um, advanced care planning, Compassion and Choices has a My End of Life Decisions Toolkit. In this toolkit, we'll ask you some important questions, such as what are your values and goals of medical treatment? How do you define life? What matters most to you? What brings you joy? All of these questions are really important to think about and kind of write down um, before you start your advanced care planning. And I have provided uh, Renee with a link. You can download this uh, toolkit from our website for free, or you can enter your address into um, our system and we'll mail you one of these. So what is an advanced directive? Your, your typical advanced directive will include um, a living will, um, and then also your power of attorney for health care. Um, so your living will is going to include the care that you want or don't want when you're no longer able to speak for yourself. And then your power of attorney for health care is you designated who is going to speak for me when I can no longer speak for myself. You don't need an attorney to fill one out, but it does need to be signed in front of the approved witnesses um, and it requires notarization for your health care proxy. Your living will includes information about resuscitation and life support. However, you can also add information about other end-of-life care treatment that you may want, such as how much pain medicine you want at the end of life. The living will may not be applicable in every single situation. However, having continuous discussions with your healthcare proxy, your healthcare provider, and your loved ones around your values, along with your documented preferences, will provide the best guidance to help you have your wishes honored. And advanced care planning is a continuous process. Um, so it's not just you fill it out once and you put it away. Um, we recommend that people uh, review their advanced directives anytime one of the five Ds happen. Anytime there's a major family uh, change, such as divorce, anytime there is significant decline in your health, Every time you start a new decade, anytime you receive a new diagnosis, and anytime you experience the death of a loved one, um, and in some cases, it could be your healthcare proxy. And I quickly want to also go over choosing a healthcare proxy. Um, so you want to make sure that this person is willing to take the time to really understand what is important to you. You want to make sure to choose someone who will who you trust to carry out your wishes, even if they differ from your own. You want to pick someone who knows how to advocate and will speak up in a crisis and who will be in the right emotional place to make difficult choices under pressure. Um, and I, I often state this, um, and somebody asked me the other day if it was true, like when I said that I say this, but before I started with some passion and choices, my husband was my healthcare proxy. Um, and after I started here and thinking about would he be in the right emotional place, um, it to take me off life support if need be. Um, and the answer to, in my head was clearly no, he would never do that. 
Um, and so I actually switched it to one of my friends who's a social worker. Um, she's a really good advocate. She'll be in a better, better emotional space. It allows my husband just the opportunity to grieve and not feel guilty about any sort of decisions that he would be making. Um, and then also making sure that you have somebody who will be able to navigate family dynamics that may occur in a stressful situation. Um, I also just want to point out, you know, my mom and my stepdad, um, my stepdad's 80 years old, and they're each other's healthcare proxies, um, which, you know, it's, I think, you know, it's probably different as you age when you, you know, and you've had these conversations a lot more to then, you know, from my mother to be my stepfather's healthcare proxy. Um, but, you know, depending again on your age, on your relationship with people, um, I think, you know, if being in my 40s, if something were to happen, I think my husband would just really want to extend my life, even if the quality of life was fun, um, with the hope that it would come back. And then I wanted to talk about um, some additional op um, options that you can add with your advanced care planning. So a do not resuscitate order, a DNR, probably most people have heard of this. It's also um, some health care systems will call it allow natural death, uh, A-N-D. So these are the same thing. Um, but this just means that when you're in the hospital, if something were to ha happen to you and you had a A&D or a DNR, that they would not provide CPR. Um, so sometimes, uh, you know, if you're, you know, seriously ill or elderly and frail um, or, you know, have a terminal illness and you go into the hospital to have surgery, you might get a DNR so that if something happens during surgery, they would not resuscitate you. Um, however, most cases of CPR take place outside of the hospital. Um, and so that's what the free hospital medical care directive is. Um, so this informs emergency personnel outside of a hospital setting that if you stop breathing or if your heart stops beating, they are to allow a natural death and not start CPR, use equipment, drugs, and devices to restart your heart or breathing. So again, if you're terminally ill or elderly, talk to your healthcare provider if you're interested in an out-of-hospital DNR. Um, so while we know that CPR can be beneficial, it can also cause complications. Uh, you know, it's not really what you see on TV where it just, you know, the quick heart pumps and then everything is okay. Um, so among a few of the complications that may come is that chest compressions can cause fractured or broken ribs, pulmonary hemorrhage, and then also bro broken sternum. A brain injury can also occur after cardiac arrest and complications vary and can depend on the person's current health and how long it takes to resuscitate the heart. So if your loved one um, dies at home and they do, or collapses at home and they do have a DNR, um, this is one of the things that the UU had asked me to talk about, but we get lots of questions about this, um, is, you know, I have, I just met a volunteer the other day and she was sharing that it was very traumatic because her husband had a DNR and um, he died at home and she immediately called 911. And when EMS showed up, they just automatically went and started giving him CPR. And she just said it was traumatic to witness. She's like, it was clear to me he was dead and they were just breaking his ribs. Um, so I do want to point out that you do not need to call 911 if your loved one has a DNR. So instead you could call, you could contact your doctor, your local medical examiner, um, a local health department or a funeral home representative about how to proceed. Um, and then you can also call non-emergency uh, police. Um, but 
once somebody starts, um, once somebody has died and they start the process of uh, rigor mortis, even if, you know, the EMS shows up, once they see that they're in rigor mortis, they won't start the CPR. Um, so if you do have to, it is strongly encouraged that you call within 24 hours. There are some exceptions for, uh, you know, different spiritual and religious beliefs. Um, but again, you do not need to call 911 immediately because even though you have that paper, oftentimes in a crisis situation, you know, EMS will just start. And then a pulse is a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. So a pulse is for people who are seriously ill or frail patients and nearing the end of life. Uh, so after having discussions with your doctor about end-of-life treatments that may be appropriate for you, this medical order is completed by your healthcare provider, and this gives orders to other healthcare professionals about how to treat you in emergency. So this is signed by the healthcare professional, and the patient keeps the original. Uh, typically, you'll print it, they recommend tipping it on um, bright like fuchsia paper or hot pink paper so that it's easily seen. And no matter where you are as the individual, you take this pulse with you. Um, and again, this is a little bit stronger than the DNRs and the out of hospital because your doctor has signed it and it's giving direct uh, exact directions on what kind of life-sustaining treatment you want or don't want at the end of life. So a pulse is an addition to having your advanced directive, um, but it doesn't replace it because you still want that healthcare proxy. Um, and I was actually talking um, to someone just the other day about this too. Um, for your advanced directive, you make that while you still have your decision-making capabilities for when you can no longer speak to yourself. However, you know, if you have Alzheimer's and it's progressed and you're in your last year of life, your doctor will usually talk to your healthcare proxy and your loved one to get the information to fill out the pulse about what treatment you want or don't want. And then I also want to touch on dementia. Um, so if you're not familiar, uh, dementia is just an umbrella term for progressive loss of memory, language, cognitive abilities, and functional capacity serious enough to, inter to intervene with daily life. Um, so the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, and this accounts for 60 to 80% of all dementia cases. And then mental decline can look different for different people. Most cases of dementia can last anywhere from two to 20 years. During the advanced stages of dementia, most people endure irre irreversible loss of mental and bodily function. However, as I said earlier, dementia is a progressive disorder. So many people can live several meaningful years after the onset of dementia. So we also know that 50% of older adults die with some form of dementia, yet the standard advanced directives don't address the complex and un unique needs of people living with dementia. And so at Compassion and Choices, we have developed a tool uh, called the Dementia Values and Priority Tool. And this you can go online and do it, um, or you can go online and print it and write it out. Um, but this will help you think about, think about and document your wishes regarding the type of care you want or don't want if and when you are living with advanced dementia. Um, so again, this is everything we have is free and it's available um, to anyone in the whole country. So a dementia healthcare directive is an addendum to your existing advanced directive. And this helps your medical team, your loved ones and your caregivers understand your wishes. So this document is relevant no matter what type of dementia you are living with. Once completed and signed, again, keep it with your advanced directive. Um, most importantly, have discussions with your healthcare team, 
um, and your loved ones. You know, I, I had a hospice social worker tell me the other day, um, just in conversations that, you know, it's really important to document your wishes, but what she often hears at the bedside is the family members recalling conversations that they had with their loved ones. Like, oh, remember mom said she would never want this. Um, remember mom said in this situation, I would never want that. So again, the conversations are really, really key. And then I want to go over a little bit what the slides look like. And this, when I was talking about the PULSE, the Physician Order of Life-Sustaining Treatment, these options match up with what a PULSE has. Um, so you can mark that you want to live as long as possible, meaning you want to continue receiving aggressive care. Um, and then you can select treat me, but not aggressively. Um, so you want to receive acute care, um, but nothing too aggressive. So usually not super invasive surgery, not in the ICU, breathing tubes and stuff. Um, you know, but like if I'm having pneumonia, I want to be treated for pneumonia. And then allow for a natural death um, means that you only want to receive comfort care. So naturally, at you know, at the end of life, if you get sick, when we would usually treat that, such as pneumonia, they can provide comfort care to keep you comfortable, but not treat you for pneumonia um, so that you die from the pneumonia. Let's progress that for you. And then um, there's about 13 different markers in this tool. And this was designed by a team of healthcare professionals that specialize in dementia care. And these different markers are typically what they hear are like the line in the sand of when a person would no longer want to live with dementia. Um, so I just put a couple of examples in. So if I'm unable to remain at home and have to live in a nursing facility, then I want, and then you would go in and check which option you would want. If I no longer recognize my loved ones, then I would want, and again, you would go in and select the options you want. And then at the end of this, there's an option to put your own markers in here. So things that are important to you that we did not already select. Um, and if there is something that we selected that you do not care about, you can also just skip over those. And then once you finish this, it will print it. Um, and then we don't save any of the information. We don't collect any of your information when you go online and do this. Um, so again, you, you'll want to print it and it, um, attach it to your advanced directive. And then, you know, I have my dementia addendum um, filled out. My grandmother died from Alzheimer's. So this is the one thing that I really does concern me in life. Um, but, you know, I still need to go in and review this because how I feel today may be different than how I feel 10 years from now. And then I, we also have a Plan Your Care Resource Center. It's just CompassionAndChoices.org, end-of-life planning. And you'll find a whole bunch of information on there. Um, and then one of the things, I don't know, Ben, if you had told me this, maybe I'm making this up, um, that maybe your dad had called our end-of-life consultation line to find out about BSED. I might be making this up. Um, but we do have an end-of-life consultation program. And um, it's just you know, free um, information. So they're not going to give you advice on what you should do in every situation. Like if you have questions about voluntary stop eating and drinking, you know, if you want to find out how do you find a supportive hospice, you know, all hospices pretty much provide the same basic services. Um, but outside of that, they can, 
you know, do a whole bunch of others. Some will do Reiki. Um, some provide, you know, a lot more care during the day than others. Um, so they'll even teach you kind of how good questions, how to interview a hospice. Um, but any sort of end of life option question that you may have, you can call them. And again, it's free and confidential. Um, and it doesn't have to be you calling about yourself. Um, it can be me calling about, you know, my mom or my friend. Um, so again, it's nothing like, um, they're not giving personal advice. Um, so that's why they're allowed to kind of speak to whoever. And then questions. Hello. Thank you both for sharing. That was really helpful information. I think there are going to be a lot of questions. In the meantime, I'll just mention next week's presentation will be on Wikipedia, and that'll be with Spencer Graves. So we'll go ahead and start with our questions and answers. Jefferson. Yeah, this question is for Angela, and I wondered if you could talk about what was your um, process of deciding that you wanted to do this job in consideration of your past experience uh, prior to that? Yeah, so I used to work um, for a U.S. senator and here in Arizona, and we did... Um, I did constituent, I was the director of constituent services and then community outreach. And one of my areas in Arizona, we have a lot of snowbirds. So focusing on seniors and Alzheimer's. Um, but really once the pandemic hit, the state actually oversees all of like the nursing homes. We had a lot of people reaching out to us because they couldn't get a hold of anybody at the state or in the state nursing homes to find out what was happening to their parents. They would just find out that their parents were in the hospital and very close to death at the last minute. So that was really what made me start thinking about it. And then also my grandmother, she um, was the nicest person ever. She did not want to move into a nursing home, never complained about anything until she moved in the nursing home. Um, and she never let it go. My family didn't talk about necessarily the advanced care planning around my grandmother. My mom was the closest person physically to my grandmother. My mom's also a nurse, but she was at work and we had family up from Tennessee that was with my grandmother when she collapsed. And by the time my mom got to the hospital, my grandmother was on a ventilator, which is the one thing that she made my mom promise never to put her on. Um, and by this time, she had had Alzheimer's for several years and didn't know who any of us were anymore. So there was no point in extending her life. But then afterwards, the big fallout within my family, nobody spoke to anybody for a year afterwards because everybody was very upset about how how things happened. So, and seeing the grief that my mom carries from that experience. Hi, thank you for this information. Um, due to my own experience with my dad, and they did do CPR and he was in a coma for 10 months, I've had a lot of conversations with my folks over this. And my concern is that I'm here in Kansas City and my folks are in Georgia. I would be a person who really should be the power of um, healthcare proxy, um, considering the emotional state of the rest of my family that are close by. But how practical is that? Is it best to have somebody that's right there and that won't do what she wants to have done? Or is it better to have me here and not be able to get there for, you know, a day or two should something happen? And do you have thoughts? I would I would definitely want somebody close by. I don't know if that's what Angela would say. I think that's what, what you really need. Yeah, we do. Um, 
think that it is important to consider somebody that's close by because oftentimes, again, these are crisis situations where you need somebody who can be there making decisions. But again, it doesn't have to be family members. It could be a neighbor. It could be somebody, you know, from her faith community. You know, she's involved in different churches. Um, So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a family member. So, but she should have it documented for sure what she wants. Uh, we have some online questions. Uh, more than one person asked about the difference between, about specifically the state of Kansas. Um, are there options in Kansas? How do options differ in Kansas? Um, does that 911 rule that you talked about apply in Kansas also? Can you just specifically talk about the state of Kansas for a while? Yeah, so everything that I mentioned applies to Kansas as well. Um, so medical aid in dying is the only end-of-life option um, that is specific to just those 11 jurisdictions. Everything else I covered um, covers the whole um, country. Um, and actually, I was when I was looking for this, um, we always knew it was a U.S. Um, Supreme Court decision that allowed for visa to be a legal option, but it actually came out of a case from um, Kansas City, Missouri back in the 90s, so... You guys have been on the forefront. I'll, I'll have to just say that uh, for for many many years, my dad had a DNR on the on his refrigerator. That was from a physician's office in Kansas, and as it turned out, that would would not have served him. Um, as we went into the visa, that's when we found out that DNR was not appropriate for Missouri refrigerator to have on. Uh, one follow-up question I forgot to add um, is, where is changing laws in Kansas on the national priority list for compassionate choices? Um, for medical aid and dying? So, uh, you know, a lot of what we, a lot of stuff is state-related, um, and we kind of stay out of state-related stuff and just do more federal, um, with the exception of medical aid and dying, because um, that's actually... You can't do it federally. It has to be state by state. Um, And so we have to often look at what the state uh, legislature looks like and what the governor looks like and what, like, their values are. Um, So, unfortunately, um, Kansas is more of a lean towards, you know, keeping life-sustaining treatment options more, like, on the forefront of things. even though, again, which is why we think it's important to get out and educate people that you do have the right to refuse medical um, care. But so it isn't totally high on our priority list, if that makes sense. Well, and I'll just add, I think quite recently in Missouri, they introduced legislation. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, 1903 for medical aid in dying here. So we'll see where that goes this year. Yes, I saw that. It was one of the representatives from Kansas City, too, I think. Uh, the question I had is, you had mentioned some people make this choice for VSED when learning of dementia, of a diagnosis of dementia. So are you saying that you could start VSED at the initial point of a diagnosis of dementia, or you meant something else? No, yeah. It, immediately, if you want, when you get diagnosed with dementia, you could start the VSED process. However, some people choose to wait because... Once you get diagnosed with dementia, it doesn't mean that you lose all your decision-making capabilities right away. Um, so having those conversations with your doctor about what is this going to look like, 
when will I, you know, when I'm starting to do this, how much longer do you think I'll have my decision-making capabilities? Um, you know, we'll help you decide when you should do VSET if you wanted to wait a little bit longer. So we have um, another storyteller in Minnesota who did VSET um, with her dementia diagnosis, and she had waited three years after she received her dementia diagnosis, but she still had her decision-making capabilities at that time. Okay, so another online question uh, from early in your presentation. Is palliative sedation similar to a medically induced coma? Well, the goal of palliative sedation is for to make the person completely unconscious until death. Um, so medically induced coma, sometimes the goal is not, right? Um, but so palliative sedation, it's to reduce complete consciousness until death. A lot of times when people are taking a lot of pain medication at the end of life, they'll kind of come in and out of it. On um, the palliative sedation, you're, the goal is to be completely out. And typically people die within one to three days. From, from the same questioner, is medical aid the same as what Kevorkian was doing? No. So um, medical aid and dying. So Dr. Kevorkian was, that's, what we consider euthanasia, which is illegal in all of the U.S. Um, so the, the big difference with medical aid and dying is the person who's choosing it is in control the entire time. Um, so again, you have to have a terminal illness uh, with a six-month prognosis, which I'm not sure that Dr. Kevorkian or the people necessarily had the six-month prognosis, um, and the person has to be able to self-ingest it. So Dr. Kevorkian was injecting people with medication um, most people with medical aid in dying will make a little, mix up a little drink and then they drink it and then they will um, kind of pass it out into a coma and die usually within 30 minutes is on average. Um, so again, it's all about the person taking it themselves um, versus having a third party or a doctor injecting somebody with it. Um, and we used to have, in a lot of our laws, we would have a 15 day waiting period a person would need to make the request um, and then wait 15 days later and also make the second request. And we've had to actually go back and amend that to make it 48 hours because uh, Kaiser did a study on it and found that 20% of the people were actually dying during that 15-day waiting period. So most of the people who were requesting medical aid and dying um, are so, so close to death anyways. So so you've talked about a lot of different forms today, including the uh, DNA or DNR, and then a DNR that's out of care. We have a healthcare proxy. We have um, the physician order for life-sustaining treatment. You talked about making these readily available. How, how do we really do that in practical terms? This is my question. So just make sure that your doctor has a copy, that your loved ones have a copy, that your healthcare proxy has one, um, that you have it. So if you do have your out-of-hospital DNR or your pulse on your fridge, um, we have a very, so we're, we're more of a grassroots organization. So we have a ton of volunteers and supporters across the country that are very concerned about this kind of stuff. And they will like keep it on every single um, door in their house. Um, uh, just to make sure it's seen by everybody, like they know what they want exactly. Um, so uh, again, the documents are really, really important. 
I, again, I would say even more important is making sure you're having those conversations, right? Um, because as long as people understand what your values and priorities are around the end of life, like they do, you know, people do want to honor your choices. Um, your healthcare provider for sure will want to do it. And again, making sure you're choosing the right healthcare proxy so that they understand exactly what it is so that they can honor it. So documents are important. Conversations are even more important sometimes, I would say. When we talk about advanced healthcare directive, that encompasses all of these different forms. Is that correct? It's yes. not a one thing. Okay. And all of those forms are available on your website. And uh, the post you should ask your doctor for. Okay. The physician's order of life-sustaining treatment. Because then my question was, when you talked earlier about the, um, I think it was Ben who said the order that was for your father was in Kansas and that wasn't going to work in Missouri. So are the forms online also state specific? Yes, they are. We have a drop down menu so you can pick which state you're in. And so some states will honor other um, advanced care directives and stuff. Um, but if you are, so I live in Arizona, my parents are snowbirds, they're in Michigan. Uh, because they spend a significant amount of time in both states, um, I would suggest that they have their documents for both states. Um, but if you're just traveling to, you know, if they were just coming down here for a week and had it with them, I think Arizona would most likely try to honor it. But again, state rules and state laws can vary, you know, it, it varies very much by state. Um, so something may be an, a legal option for you to choose in Missouri, but it might not be a legal option in Kansas. So the best laid plans may not always pan out when we travel. Yes. That is planning for life in general, right? Yeah. I had another question about VSED. So if you're choosing to do that, you have this discussion with family members and there's disagreement. Let's say it's a parent and their children. Adamant disagreement. How does that play out when it actually goes to the event occurring? Can, can, I guess my question is, can some of the children block that? Can some of them insist that the parent's no longer capable of making their own decisions and therefore? So, uh, no, you can also get a mental health evaluation to prove that you can still make your health care decisions. I think you guys had that a little bit, Ben, in your family where your brother, was he not as supportive? It kind of came around? It, it, it took a while to come around. And, and certainly there's been tension in her family about about the whole thing. Um, again, there is no legal right to take away a person's choice to be said. I guess if if somebody was found to be mentally incapable, uh, Angela, is that is would that have that would have to go through a court system where you would have to be declared unable to make a uh, a, a decision. Yeah, which could stop it. So, I mean, when people, one of the things I like about um, Ben sharing the story is his dad had planned this for a long time. And there, I, you could really go on and on about B said, and I just had a short time. Um, but some of the um, suggestions that people will make when doing B said, some people will see a mental health um, clinician ahead of time and make sure that's documented. Um, some people make a recording. 
you know, you know, people do this with dementia too. This is always a good thing. So you make a recording about how you want to live that your family members can look back or they can show other people. Um, so that as, you know, as the visa process continues and you're kind of losing some of your ability to hold conversations, um, people can view this recording and see, no, this is what this person wanted. Um, but, you know, yeah, we always suggest, again, documenting everything. Some people make a visa binder and keep it with um, everybody involved. And that's why we say to pick a supportive team, right? So if you have some children who are not supportive, um, they don't need to be there. They don't need to necessarily be included in the plan. One of the things that I had talked to Ben about too is when I talk about visa, I'm a marathon runner. So the idea of not eating sounds horrible to mm-hmm. me, right? Um, and so when I will go out and talk about visa, um, sometimes I feel like, you know, it doesn't necessarily sound like such a great option. But when we have storytellers come and share, then you can see that it can be meaningful. And one of the times that I shared about it most recently, somebody else in the audience, the UU Church actually in California, um, shared that his brother had ALS and went through the visa process. And it gave them the opportunity to all gather and be with him during his final days of life, rather than just finding out one day that his brother died, you know? Um, so it was really meaningful for the family and for the brother who was going through the visa process to go that way. Um, we're out of time at this point, so we're going to have, and we have to vacate this room. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. And now, please stay tuned for a special presentation of A Taste of Tejano, honoring the life and memory of Lisa Lopez Galvan, here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.